Well, good morning. Uh, please find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in your Bibles. Uh, for our visitors, I'm uh, not the pastor, I'm one of the elders. I'm preaching today. Um, <clears throat> we have chosen a pastor. He is uh, coming from the U.S. His visa is in process. We expect to hear things any day now, so if I make you more eager for his arrival, I will count today a success. So uh, we have been looking at 1 Thessalonians the past few weeks, um, and I will say Mike has joined some of our elders' meetings, and it's been a joy just to discuss these things with him. They are so very eager to be here, and uh, their hearts are already here. So in time, in God's timing, they'll be here. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, of course, this passage is about the day of the Lord, about end times. And often when we think about end times, our curiosity goes to the timing and the sequence of related events. Not only Jesus' return, but resurrection of dead, rapture, millennium, great tribulation, and more. And if you don't know what all of those terms means, mean, that's okay. Um, it's not the, not the worst thing to be ignorant about. Um, but at times, the curiosity has led people to make attempts at setting or determining dates, despite Jesus' clear words, that no one knows the day or hour of his return except the Father. But that doesn't stop some people. I remember in early 1988, a book came out called 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Do you guys have that at Crossroads? Oh, I can't believe it. Uh, I don't remember if I ever had it or not. If I did, I don't think I had it for long. So rapture is the... A uh, popular term for what we talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, our gathering together to when Jesus uh, takes us to himself. Uh, the book's author, Edgar Wisnant, uh, predicted the rapture would take place mid-September 1988 during the Jewish holiday of Rosh, Rosh Hashanah. He said, the quote is there, only if the Bible is wrong, is in error, am I wrong. I would stake my life on Rosh Hashanah 1988. Um, well, that is truly a staggering claim. And and, of course, the book sold, and again, I remember this well, the book sold like four million copies. Uh, it was, uh, just we heard about it constantly. People were really frightened and stirred up over this. I was actually concerned to, over the number of pastors that I felt were pretty solid that were using this to manipulate emotions and, and scaring people. And, um, you know, that's actually not what Paul does in this passage, so I don't think we'll do that. You might be scared a little bit, but maybe not. Um, some of you should be, so that's, we'll get to that. But, of course, uh, his prediction, like every prediction before and since, failed. Um, he didn't pay for that with his life, but he has since passed away, so he knows better now. Um, but we're also not the first people to be curious about these things, right? Um, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that the Old Testament prophets really tried to understand these things and that even angels longed to look into these things. Jesus' disciples asked him about these things in Matthew 24. And he didn't rebuke them for asking. He gave them, actually gave them a long discourse about the future, but no dates. Um, and then in Acts 1, just before Jesus ascended, his disciples asked him again, Lord, now? And he said, it's not for you to know. And then up he went. <laughs> so, you know, we're not, there's, there are things that we are supposed to know. There are things, and the Lord has given those in his word, and there are things that are not for us to know yet, and we trust him for that. And the Thessalonians, of course, had questions about 
the day of the Lord and the return of Christ. We see some mention of it in every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and it's a major focus in 2 Thessalonians. So if you're curious about this, you're actually in good company, and then it's not wrong. But Paul's instruction about the day of the Lord, he, he acknowledges their interest in dates and times and seasons, but he moves very quickly from that to the radical difference that this day means for believers and unbelievers. So as we read chapter and first part of chapter 5, just listen for those contrasts between believer and unbeliever as, as about the, the day of the Lord. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night or the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So before we go further, we need to be reminded once again that we need instruction about the day of the Lord. This is the fourth time Paul has said something about uh, needing instruction. Now he says in verse 1, now brothers and sisters about times and dates, we do not need to write you, but of course he doesn't stop there. He writes, right? Like I don't need to write you, but I'm gonna write anyway. It's kind of like, you know, you're sitting there thinking, you know, he didn't need to say that, but he said it anyway. Yeah, I, I, those are my thoughts as I sit down after preaching. It's like, yeah, yeah, I said some things, didn't need to, but providence such a good word. So I'll blame it on God, right? Um, I don't think he wants credit for or the blame for a lot of this. But the Thessalonians did need instruction about this. There was a time when they did not know, and they did need to be taught, and Paul taught them when he was with them. And we need instruction about these things. We cannot know these things unless God reveals them. So God's word is the place to turn, and we need to know that. Um, so we need instruction from the Lord so that our hope is firmly placed, that it's sure and certain, and that we know how to live as we wait for Jesus to come back. And part of the instruction that we need is just the meaning of the day of the Lord. Now, the term is used in the Old Testament for a day or time when God judges his enemies, and by judging enemies, he delivers his people. Now, here's just one verse. There are many verses in the Old Testament about this. This is Isaiah 13. He says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Okay. And then when we come to the New Testament, we also see a final climactic day in which the Lord will judge his enemies, and by judging enemies he delivers his people. So this is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. Peter writes this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Now, there is a new, new development with the day of the Lord when we come to the New Testament. It, the day of the Lord has become the day of the Lord Jesus. So we read in Philippians chapter 1, 
Or Paul says, picking up in mid-sentence, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's the same day, okay? The day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh is the day of Jesus because Jesus is God, he's Yahweh. So this is his day. So the day of the Lord refers to this climactic day yet in the future when Jesus Christ will return to the earth, the dead will be raised, Jesus will judge his enemies, will be gathered to him, the curse on creation will be lifted, will be with him forever in a renewed creation. Thank you. Amen. Right. The rest is details, okay? Timing, sequence, all of this happens. Those are details. These things will happen. That day is coming. And we have every reason, if we know Christ, we have every reason to long for that day and be eager for that day. That's the attitude the Lord wants us to have. I think we'll see that here. So this day is coming, and it is coming for everyone. Every one of us will see the day of the Lord. If you die, you'll be raised. If you're living, you'll be alive at that time. Um, but the, the day means radically different things for someone who knows Christ than for someone who does not. And I want us to see, and I, um, I think there are three stark contrasts between believers and unbelievers as it relates to the day of the Lord in these verses. So the first contrast is this. It is first, there is a different mindset. It's in verses two to four. That is one of Uh, that is expectant versus being indifferent. Believers are expectant or eager. Unbelievers are indifferent. So he says in verse 2, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We already heard that from from Peter, right? Uh, While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now Paul is actually drawing from something that Jesus said that we have recorded in the Gospels, for example, in Luke 12. He says in verse 39, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. He's talking to his disciples. Okay? It's, there's, we, we don't know exactly when. And then in Luke 17, verse 26, he says this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the son of man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now, most people don't give this day a thought. They're going about life, as as Jesus describes in Luke 17, going through life, buying, selling, eating, drinking, getting married, as if these things are all that matters. This is it. This is is what life is about, and this this is what we do. And there is no thought that Jesus might dare show up and spoil the party and upset their trivial pursuit game. But to these people, Jesus' coming will be like a thief in the night, that is, unexpectedly. A few years ago, I woke up one morning to realize we had been robbed. Uh, our, our flat has, uh, we're on the top floor of our building, and our, in our flat there's a, a door to roof access, and I had just forgotten to lock that door. And uh, a thief got in our building, he used a maintenance ladder to get to the roof, 
found that unlocked door, entered our flat, uh, came you know, down the steps, picked up valuables as he went, uh, put all of those things into my daughter's Justin Bieber backpack, and, uh, <laughs> and then picked up my keys and let himself out the front door and went on his way. And uh, never heard a thing. Woke up the next morning having no idea this had happened. Um, and it, it was um, also a bit, you know, it was unsettling. I mean, that in itself was unsettling, but it was also unsettling because he had taken my keys and we couldn't get the locks changed until the day after that. So we had a night when he had my keys. So I thought, well, you know, what do we do? I thought, ah, he's a man. So I put a pile of dirty clothes in front of the apartment door and I thought, if he's a man, he's not going to come anywhere close to that. And it worked. So we made it through the next night, got the locks changed. And he actually is a man. Uh, by the time the police came and did fingerprints and stuff, and by the time they caught him, he was in prison for something else. So you know his parents are proud. Um, but if I had known he was coming, I certainly would have locked that door, right? And that is Paul's point. That's Jesus' point. That's Peter's point. No thief announces his intention. He doesn't put a notice on the door like, you know, in your buildings where it says, you know, you know where they're going to come read the electricity or the gas. Like, nope. No thief does that. No thief sends a text that, hey, I want to drop by about 4 a.m. and just pick up some things. Is that okay? No thief does that, right? And Jesus... Is, has already given us notice that he is coming back and he owes no one further notice. We, we don't need to expect any more great revelations. I think we'll, we'll get to what we can expect, but the notice has already been given. The world is on notice. Further, his coming will be unexpected because people will think they have peace and safety. That's in verse 3. In times of greater security and stability and peace, we tend to think this will last forever. And little by little, eternity slips from our view, usually slowly and subtly. And I'll be honest with you, I've been convicted about this even as I prepared for today, just how easy I can become comfortable and just lose my focus on, on the day, on the day of his return and, and on eternity and keeping that perspective. So Jesus will come at a time when they think their security is coming will be like the onset of labor pains. Now, I know from experience, Karen's experience, that while... Labor is generally predictable. We don't know the exact moment that labor will begin. And when it does begin, you realize the inevitable is happening and priorities are radically changed. Nothing else matters. Karen called me the first time she was, I mean, when she was pregnant with our first child. And uh, we were living two hours away from the hospital. So when she called, she said, I think I'm in labor. We didn't wait to find out. We just <laughs> got in the car and drove. Uh, we generally knew, but that day began like, like any other. We knew labor could happen, but it was not until it happened that we knew it was happening. So it was, it was unexpected. But here is our first contrast. The day of the Lord will not catch everyone by surprise. As believers in Christ, our mindset about the day of the Lord is not indifferent, but expectant. So he says this in verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. And verse 4 tells us why. It is because we are not in darkness. That is, the grace of God has awakened us to the reality of this day and of who Christ is. Now, we'll see, we'll see more about that in just a minute. So, we are not going to know the exact day or hour, but neither will we be completely surprised as these events 
unfold. We can look forward to the day like a bride looks forward to her wedding day, even though we don't know the day, we can look forward to it. Now bear in mind, like everyone else, we still eat and drink and we buy and sell and plant and build and we have our weddings, but we do so with a very different mindset. Okay, We know that the things we buy and sell and plant and build, they are, they are temporary. That everything we have is entrusted to us by God for a season, whether it's money or possessions or houses, even relationships. All, everything is entrusted for, for a season. We own nothing. We are but managers. So we, we have a, a very different mindset, and especially when we hear people guaranteeing our peace and safety. I love election years because that's often the campaign slogan, right? There'll be something about, about peace and safety, and I just chuckle to myself and say, good luck, maybe Jesus will come. <laughs> you know, maybe that's a sign. Um, because it is an illusion. I'm sorry to, to uh, disillusion you, but you are not safe. It, safety is always relative. And, um, you know, you may be asking for a comment to hit this building right now before I get any further, but probably not going to happen, but... We are never completely safe except in Christ. And so unbelievers are focused on the things of this world, but indifferent to the return of Christ. We are focused on Christ and on his return and live with some kind of indifference to the things of the world. Yes, we buy and sell, we marry and and do those things that are necessary for life and enjoy. Those are the gifts of God. But our hearts are set not on these things, but on Christ himself as we look forward to him. So second contrast, we've seen a different mindset then there's a different posture that's in verses 5 to 8. And that is alert and sober versus unaware and unrestrained. So we're told in verse 5 why we are to live differently, and in verses 6 to 8, how we should live. So the why in verse 5, he says, You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So this present age is in many ways like, like darkness, and we were once at home in the darkness. We were once... We once belonged to the darkness. We loved the darkness. That's Jesus' statement in John 3. This is the testimony, God, is that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. But, but, we have been transformed by the grace of God in the gospel. We've been brought into the light. Our, our values, our priorities, our loyalties, our desires, all of that has been changed. We've seen the light. We've embraced it. And now, We belong to it. So as we talk about the day of the Lord, Paul says, we're children of the day. We belong to the day. We are children of this coming day. We belong to the day of the Lord. This is going to be our day. This is like our wedding day. We can look forward to it. We we should look forward eagerly to this day. We can because, because our Lord is coming. The lover of our souls who's paid for us, he is coming. We can look forward to him, right? Because of this transforming grace, we are to live differently from those who do not have that hope in Christ. So he says in verse 6, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So he says you should be alert. And he draws the contrast here between being awake or alert and asleep. Now by sleep, He's not saying you should never physically sleep. I think you, you understand that. But he is saying that sleep, by sleep here, he means indifference to this coming judgment. Just like a person who is asleep is unaware of what is happening around them. And 
Sleep typically is something that is done at night. I know some people work at night, sleep during the day. That's not really what we're talking about here. Generally, we sleep at night. I'm an old man. I sleep during the day sometimes. It happens. So generally, we sleep at night. But here, sleep is this moral indifference to judgment. And the person, just like sleep typically belongs to the night, the person who belongs to the darkness is indifferent about Christ, indifferent about his return, indifferent about the coming judgment. They simply don't care. It is not on their minds. It's not on their radar, so to speak. But we belong to the day. And so we are aware. We, we are not indifferent to Christ or his promise or his return or the reality of sin or the brokenness of our world. We're not indifferent to any of those things. We are quite awake and quite alert and watching for his appearing. And it could be today. Maybe it will. But we should also be sober. Now, people can get drunk anytime. If you've been here long enough, pretty much any hour of the day, you, if you are outside, you are likely to see someone under the influence of some substance, okay? Um, but drunkenness is more typically a nighttime endeavor, shall we say. Now, most commentators point out that drunkenness here is not, not just about consuming too much alcohol. It has the idea of, of a, an excess, of a lack of restraint, a lack of self-control really in all areas of life. And so the person who belongs to the darkness has no self-control, themselves, gives themselves to whatever urge is in the moment, but we must be different. We must be sober. We must be ruled by Christ. We must live in light of that day, in light of eternity, and not be ruled by, by urges in the moment in all areas of life, not just in what substances you consume, but all areas of life. We are to be self-controlled and live Live in light of that day. Then he unpacks this more in verse 8 about being sober. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So the word picture here is of a soldier. And a soldier who is on duty must be alert. He must be sober. I was just reading, looking for some background and read stories. You know, sentries, sentries, that is soldiers who are on watch, if they fell asleep, they were executed. That's how, that's how important it is because your whole, your whole band of soldiers is at risk if the one who is watching is asleep. So he says, we must be watching. You know, we're not watching so much for enemies. We're watching for, for Christ, for the love of our souls. But we are to be watching. We dare not be asleep. Uh, we are to be sober. But he says, this is what being sober looks like. It means Pursuing faith, hope, and love. Okay, and we saw this in in chapter one when we looked at that. We learned then that that we all possess faith, hope, and love. These are human faculties. We all trust. We all hope. We all love. But the problem is, apart from the gospel, all of those are turned. They're twisted and turned in on ourselves, so that we trust ourselves, we love ourselves, and we hope in ourselves. But by the grace of God in the gospel, those things are transformed. So that um, faith then looks up to Christ and away from ourselves. So we trust in his death and resurrection as sufficient for our salvation. And we trust him day by day. Love looks around. That is, we look to Christ. We know his love, embrace his love, put our, our confidence in his love. And then we can look away from ourselves 
to seek the welfare of others, to show his love to them. And hope looks forward, again, away from ourselves to all that God has promised us in Christ. We do this not only because of what God has done in us, but because of what he has done for us. And that's, that's in verse 9, and that's the third contrast. There is a different destiny. It is wrath versus salvation. Verse 9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. God's wrath is his justice. It is his proper response to those who reject him, those who reject salvation through Christ. His wrath is just. His wrath is terrifying. And it is certain. Like we said a moment ago, no escape. This is coming. This is coming on the world. It is certain. It is just. And it is terrifying. And the Father would not have been unjust if he had left us to suffer his wrath, but we learn in verse 9 that he has appointed us for salvation. He took the initiative to save us. We saw this when we considered election in chapter 1. So, friends, thank the Lord Every day. If you know Christ, thank the Lord every day for saving you, for appointing you not for wrath, but for salvation, because that is what we deserve. That is justice. And God has shown us not justice, but grace. Christ is born the justice so that we might know grace. And that, that takes us to, to what we're told about Christ. So the Father appointed us for salvation, not wrath, but the Son took upon himself the burden of resolving. The, the source of that wrath, the cause of that wrath, our own sin. So he takes upon himself the burden of our sin. He died for us. He paid a price that we cannot begin to fathom, that we might know forgiveness, that we might be reconciled to God. And he rose again to conquer death, to give us life, to give us hope of, of resurrection. And the goal of all of this is in verse 10. It says he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, that is alive or dead in that day, we may live together with him, that we might be with him. And this is his promise in John 14. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Is that not precious? Is that not good? He is coming to take, he is preparing a place for us. Um, I'm attending this conference this week in Fellowship of European Evangelical Theologians. I'm not European, but they let me in anyway. And, uh, but the theme is eschatology. We're talking about these things. And I'm, um, and, uh, but, you know, had this discussion as only theologians could have. Of, you know, are there any man-made things in heaven? And I think, well, they're the scars of Jesus. And I think, oh, well, wait, a great deal of it is actually man-made because Jesus is human and he's our creator. So I did not offer that being... American and by nature shallow and superficial. I just kept my comments to myself. I thought, I'll get to say this tomorrow to the church and they don't have much choice. So um, that's all right. Um, but that is, that is his promise that he will come for each of us or all of us. He will come and we will be with him. And that was his prayer in John 17. He says toward the end of his prayer in John 17, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. He wants us to be with him. I don't know about you, but I look in the mirror and I think, why? <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm just this pathetic old knucklehead, <laughs> you know, following Christ for 40 years and just feel like I'm 
you know, just so full of sin that it's, uh, you know, just wonder at his grace. And yet he wants us to be with him, to see his glory. This, friends, this is delightful. This is good. This is something to be eager about, something to look forward to, something to, to hunger for and long for, like a bride longs for a wedding day. And a groom, too. So, we'll be fair to grooms. Um, so, what do we do in light of, of all of this that we've heard today? Well, of course, we need to hear the challenge, right? To live in light of his coming, to pursue faith, hope, and love, to be alert and to be sober. But we cannot do this alone. And that's why he says in verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another, build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. See, our hearts naturally drift toward complacency and indifference. Okay? That, is, that, that law is, is still working in us. We need to be watching out for each other. Now, I can see complacency in my own heart, but it helps if others, if we can come alongside one another. As he says, encourage one another, build one another up. We should encourage one another to press on, especially amid just the, the sorrows and burdens and, and trials of life. We should build one another up because, honestly, we go through the week and we're beat down and the pressures of, of this age, the pressures of the darkness, because though we belong to the light, we live in a world that is consumed in darkness. And it has its effect on it. it can dis- on us, it can discourage us. And we, we come back gathering either to a small group or in this larger group and feeling just beat up by the world. You know, somebody says, how's the world treating you? And I think, like I don't belong to it. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's hard, right? And you can feel oppressed, well, we should build one another up to, to counteract those pressures. So let's help each other so that the things of this world don't distract us or dull our hearts to the nearness of Christ. So look for someone to encourage as you leave here, somebody to encourage, somebody to build up, somebody to point to Christ. If you need encouragement or building up, you're probably going to have to let somebody know because, I mean, you come to church and you just look so nice. So it's unlikely people will know you need encouragement unless you tell them. And that is okay. It's all right to be that open with people. Our home groups are great settings for that. That kind of transparency with one another, it's, it's healthy. It's good. Um, so the point of all of this, this instruction about the day of the Lord, is not to tell us the day and the hour or the order of events. It is to stir up our faith, our hope, and our love so that we will live eager for that Wonderful, glorious day when we will see him, and we want that day always on our minds, just always in the background, always uh, making decisions, the, the things I say, knowing that, that that day is coming. And if you do not know Christ, considering the day of the Lord should truly terrify you. Now, I do not think manipulating emotions is ethical or right, so that is not my intent here, but friend, I am telling you, Truly, you should be terrified. If you understood the danger you are in, you would not do anything before you find refuge in Christ. That is, that's more important, more urgent than anything else. Because that day is coming and we do not know when. And if you do not know Christ and you stand before him on your own, I promise you that day will not end well for you. And that is an eternity 
an eternity of no hope. It is an eternity of wrath. It is an eternity of justice. So friends, our plea with you today, flee the wrath to come because Christ has died and risen and offers you forgiveness, if you will, but turn from your sin, put your hope in him. So if you want to know more about what it means to know Christ, to know forgiveness, to know uh, salvation, please talk to one of us after the service today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have not appointed us for wrath, but for salvation. We cannot thank you enough, and we will thank you forever. As we sang this morning, we will sing forever. We love you, and we love you because you loved us first. And we bless you for that. Father, we confess how easily our hearts are distracted and dulled to your nearness. We don't think about the day. When we do, we get curious about dates and times and charts and arrows and who's going where, when, and, and we forget that this day really is just about you. So I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters here today that you will just awaken us, uh, stir our hearts simply to focus on you, to, to cultivate that eagerness to see you as we remain in fellowship with one another, as we, we spend time with you and your word and prayer. I pray that you will just stir our hearts to seek you. I pray you will awaken in us a longing for you even as we see the brokenness in our own hearts and, and in the world around us. Let all of those things move us to just long for you to say Maranatha to May, Lord, come quickly. We do love you, and we look forward to seeing you. And we, we do thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.